Emmy Award-winning John Mulaney presents Everybody's in L.A., a special run of six live episodes created by and starring Mulaney that'll stream live on Netflix during the Netflix is a Joke Fest. The comically unconventional show will feature special guests where John Mulaney explores the city of Los Angeles during a week when every funny person is in it. Watch John Mulaney Presents Everybody's in L.A., debuting May 3rd live at 7 p.m. Pacific Time, only on Netflix. Start clean with Clorox, because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen, remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, 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 of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well... Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Hello, everyone. We are unspooled. Oh, that was classy. Uh, (laughs) I'm film critic Amy Nicholson. And I am uh, comedian and actor Paul Shear. And Amy and I joined up about two, maybe three years ago to watch supposedly the best movies of all time. And we tackled the AFI's top 100 films list. And we went through it and looked at these films. Do they hold up? What is worthy about these films? Are they truly the 100 best American-made films? Or are they just a meme that we remember? And we've had some really fun discussions on this show, kind of picking apart what people tell us is important versus what is actually entertaining and good. Exactly. Like, we went through those first 100 films and we kept 40 of them. And 60 of them, we were like, eh, I think we could do better. I think there are 60 better films that we would like to pick to represent the world of cinema. And so that is what we're doing in our second season. We are going through and exploring other films that we think are worthy of making that list that aren't distracted by like the same old dudes who all knew each other. And we're like, we love a Western. And you know what? Why are we making a list? And that's a very important question. We're making a list of the 100 best films because it's our intent, our purpose to launch these films into outer space. We're talking to astronauts. We're trying to figure it out. So we are trying very hard to make sure that our list is well-rounded. We're going to go all around the world. We're going to explore different genres. We're not going to be snooty about it. There are movies that you love, like Mean Girls, and maybe movies that you never heard of, like Ganja and Hess. And these are not just recap podcasts. Think of us as a book club. Watch the movie and then sit back and enjoy the conversation that we have and continue the conversation with us on our Discord. Uh, we love talking about movies and we're not just going to sit there and go, remember that one scene? That was cool. I mean, sometimes we'll do that. But oh, most of the time... Oh, like really cool, bro. <laughs> but most <laughs> of the time we are in it to really find out what movies are worthy of representing the world of film. We hope you join us on this journey. And right now, uh, this is an episode we recently did as a part of our summer blockbuster series. We went back and looked at different blockbusters and saw, do they actually hold up? And uh, this is one film that a lot of people had a very passionate take on, Jurassic Park. And uh, if you've listened to other shows of ours, if this is a first time listening, you'll know that Amy and I had debated, is Jurassic Park better than Jaws? Steven Spielberg created the blockbuster and then in many ways revolutionized it with Jurassic Park. So that's part of the debate in this uh, episode here. So take a listen. The year is 1993 and hold on to your butts because the movie is Jurassic Park. Hello, everyone. 
everyone, and welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear, and this is the podcast where we are trying to find the 100 best movies of all time and taking many detours on the way to get there. Right now, we are starting off, Amy, a series I've been looking forward to since we thought of it, Summer Blockbusters. This is the official beginning of our Summer Blockbuster series, and we are starting off with a movie that unanimously defines a summer blockbuster, which is Jurassic Park. I cannot wait to talk to you about this film. I know. We put a call out on our uh, social media and on our Discord saying, like, what are the essential summer blockbusters? Not just the ones that you love, not just the ones that were good to hide out for a while with some soda and an air conditioning machine. What are the ones that are actually good that you would stand by and say, this movie is a titan. This movie is worthwhile. This movie is not just fun. It's a little bit art. It's essential. Far and away was the number one thing I saw people saying, like, this is essential. And, you know, we're going to continue these votes uh, on the Discord and on social media. So keep on looking out because you determine what Amy and I watch on this show. And we are excited to see what you pick. Um, Amy, before we jump into this episode, I just want to ask how your summer movie experience has been. We are back at the movies. Have you seen anything that you love? What have you been watching? Anything jump out at you recently? (laughs) Well, you know, I did go to the premiere of Space Jam 2. Oh, you lucky dog. Gonna brag because Salt and Pepper played. It was like what? such a deep dive into immediate 90s nostalgia. I felt both young and old at the Wait same time. Salt and Pepper, they also were in Coming to America, the sequel to Coming to America. Uh, they're, they're having a renaissance, I feel like. They are a Salt and Pepper-sance. And, and, you know, I'll <laughs> take it because honestly, like them singing Let's Talk About Sex and all the 90s ladies like me grinding in the audience, that was like, the most sexual summer blockbuster like Space Jam 2 is going to get. So I respected them for bringing a little bit of the body heat to what is otherwise a bright colored PG movie that I happen to enjoy a lot. Honestly, honestly, maybe I lost brain cells, but maybe, maybe, maybe I'm just like sad and bereft without LeBron James in my life hooping in the playoffs. But honestly, I thought this movie was Far, 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 far superior to the original, which means it's just okay. but I was happy. Well, if you want to hear a take on the original, you can listen to the How Did This Get Made episode where we did Space Jam live from Chicago. Very different episode than what we talk about on this show. You know, we were not talking about blasting it into space for posterity. We were talking about it more like how Ripley blasted the alien out into space to save her life. You know, kind of a a preservation thing. Well, now let me ask you this. Mm Mm-hmm. Chicago, home of the Bulls, is that crowd more likely to pretend that Michael Jordan can act? Let me tell you something. Michael Jordan can do anything unless you're Scottie Pippen. Then you're going to say he can't do much of anything. But uh, if you've been following that story, it's wild. Scottie Pippen burning bridges. Amy, I want to talk about basketball so much. Uh, (laughs) But I also will say... Uh, just to continue our summer movie discussion, I really enjoyed Black Widow a lot. I it's saw it this not weekend. Bad, right? It's like Mission Impossible with Marvel characters. I was in. I was all in. Florence Pugh. What do you think? Best actress ever, or like oh my best God. best actress ever? I got I got uh, a fever. I got a I got a fever for Pugh. I mean, she is awesome. Like I instantly fell in love with her. I'm like, I'm all in. I've liked her and other stuff, but she just nailed it. That scene in the airplane where she's talking about. 
all the things that were done to her. I don't want to spoil it if you haven't seen it. It is hilarious and also dark and wonderful. And I heard that she really kind of helped create that scene, which even gave me more respect for her. I saw Tomorrow War, which is big and dumb and fun. And it reminds me of like those old school, like Tony Scott, Jerry Bruckheimer movies. I was all on board. I was like, this has heart and it's dumb as shit, but I love it. Oh, no, I am having a hard time seeing that because, you know, I'm anti Pratt. How is he? Oh, don't be anti-Pratt. I love Pratt. Don't really? be anti-Pratt. How can I be pro-Pratt? I like Pratt. I like him as a human being, uh, as a person, and I also like him as an actor. Well, I not having as, him no- as a human being. I'm free to dislike him as an actor. Okay. All right. Well, I don't want to enjoy this slander. I, I think he's very, very good. <laughs> I think he's very good. Uh, <laughs> I won't blow up my voice there. I think he's very good. All right, Amy. Well... Uh, without any further ado, let's not think about if we should do it. Let's just do it. And by that, I mean unspool it. The year is 1993. Bill Clinton is inaugurated the 42nd president of the United States. Don't ask, don't tell is the official policy of the U.S. Armed Forces, effectively banning openly gay soldiers from serving. Buckingham Palace opens its doors to the public. Remarkable firsts include Beanie Babies and bagless vacuum cleaners. And the hot movies of the year are Groundhog Day, which we covered here on the show, Days and Confuse, which we covered here on the show, Schindler's List, which we covered here on the show, Cool Runnings, which we covered here on the show, Philadelphia, we did not cover on the show, and today's film, Jurassic Park. What a great year for movies. I mean, Amy, she do a whole series of just 1993. I mean, this is a, a banger year. Tell us a little bit about who's in it, who made it, what's Jurassic Park about, as if we don't know already, Amy. As if you don't know already. Okay, fine. Here we go. Uh, Jurassic Park. It is by the one and only Steven Spielberg, the blockbuster king who already has on our shortlist for going to space the movies Jaws, Raiders, and E.T. as big summer blockbusters of yore. Now, the question for this episode is, can Jurassic Park knock one or perhaps all three of them off? I'm looking forward to having that argument, but first, let's get into the specifics. Jurassic Park is based on a book by Michael Crichton, the author whose novels became The Andromeda Strain, Disclosure, Congo, and even the TV show ER. Crichton was paid $2 million for the book of Jurassic Park. That included money to take a crack at the script, which he did. Um, although David Kep, later of Mission Impossible and War of the Worlds, finished the job. The story, of course, is about an entertainer named John Hammond, played by the director and actor Richard Attenborough, who figures out how to resurrect dinosaurs for our money-making amusement. But before his park opens, he brings two scientists, played by Sam Neill and Laura Dern, plus a chaos mathematician, played by Jeff Goldblum, to check out his park so that his investors will stay invested. Hammond's grandson and granddaughter are also there, and when one of his employees, played by Wayne Knight, steals his dinosaur embryos, and causes all hell, by which I mean all dinosaurs, to break loose. And those dinosaurs really do break loose, thanks to some brand new advances in CG animation. Take a listen. Boy, no head being right all the time. Yes, yes, yes. As you hear, people get eaten, people scream, audiences screamed, and everybody had a great time because when this movie came out on June 11th, 1993, it became the biggest worldwide blockbuster ever, breaking the record that Spielberg had previously set with his own movie, E.T. 
Honestly, this movie Breaking Records was really not a surprise for anybody because this is the kind of film that audiences just effing love. You might even say that audiences are drawn to this kind of movie like a moth to a flame. An image also used in that week's number one song on the Billboard charts, That's the Way Love Goes by Janet Jackson. Talk about a banger. I mean, 1993, this is a prime sheer year. I feel like this is where I'm really coming into my own here, too. Uh, Had so you I, kissed a girl yet? Oh, yeah. I kissed a girl in sixth grade. I mean, I was... Uh, Ooh, look at yeah. you. I did it in the Haunted Mansion, which is a ride-through ride at Adventureland Park, which was uh, prominently featured in Good Time, the uh, Safdie Brothers movie. So, actually, I believe the Haunted Mansion is is specifically in there. Yeah, so look at that. You know, they acted where I kissed with tongue. (laughs) My first kiss was also in a theme park, but it was really Really? nerdy. It was in a, in Wales, there's like a historical theme park where um, (laughs) you can go visit like different types of farms and uh, houses from Welsh history. And that's where my first kiss was. He worked there. He worked in one of the huts. He was a pretend Welsh farmer of oh, your. Oh, I like that. I like that a lot. Um, it's very typical for me. I'll take it <laughs> as a biographical fact. You know, Amy, I want to talk about this movie in a, in a bunch of different ways. I want to give it its due respect, but I also want to acknowledge the debate that we spoke about uh, the last time we talked about this movie, which was on the heels of our Jaws episode. When we were talking about Jaws, which is now actually in our feed, you can go back and listen to it for free. It's out behind the paywall. We were talking about what should be saved in the Steven Spielberg world. I mean, there's so many great Spielberg films, but is Jaws the one or is Jurassic Park the one? And I want to kind of just put that or out there. Or is E.T. For... or Raiders the one? I think this is a tough fight. Well, I agree. But I think for the sake of argument, Jurassic Park and Jaws probably have the most similarities, right? And uh, the other movies are great and we can jump into them. But these two in particular, I was making a very strong point that I felt like Jurassic Park is a better movie than Jaws, which angered so many people. But I want to put that out there. I want to address that as we talk about this film. But I don't also want to make that the whole thesis of the episode. I just want to make it as something that I'm going to return to at certain points here. I think we should. And I think the hardest thing for both of us to do in this episode and for people listening is we should be tough and brutal even on a film that we love like Jurassic Park because otherwise if we don't start making some hard calls about movies we love, Our list of space is really going to be like all Steven Spielberg movies because he made a million good Spielberg movies. And even for me, as I want to treasure and defend my love of each of these, for every Steven Spielberg movie we put on, that's probably a whole other director who never gets represented at all. So I think we have to be hard. I understand you. I, I feel you. And I just want to go out and say, as we start this conversation, this is a film that every time I watch it, I think it gets a little bit better it has so much texture and richness to it that I, it's, it really is a warm blanket movie. I'm like, ooh, I am in. I am scared. The effects still look great. The acting is perfect. I love these characters. I'm just constantly amazed that after years of seeing this movie about it being in pop culture, that it's so fun. It's still really, really fun. Like, I pop this on and 
just was excited to watch it. I mean, how did you feel in going back to uh, Issa Nublar? <laughs> I mean, exactly the same with, I think, a little bit of extra trepidation because I have not mm-hmm. been the biggest fan of the Jurassic World spinoffs that have come out. You know, perhaps because of an actor that shall not go name uh, named unless you huff again at me. Yeah. Uh, and so you going back to Ground Zero of a franchise I've been worrying about. I had that bit of, am I going to carry any animosity or will I be able to love this film on its own the way that I, the way that I can without thinking about the damage that it has wrought? And what was interesting to me in this watch is that this is a film that I believe really grapples with the fact that it is perhaps creating a type of summer movie that will continue to reign terror on the planet. You know, I think there are a lot of similarities between this character of Hammond, the guy who's like at the reins of creation, at the reins of giving people what they really want. You're wondering, like, is this the right thing to do? Or perhaps not wondering and being forced to ask if you should, because this is a movie that Steven Spielberg makes nearly 20 years after he's made Jaws, after he has single-handedly created the summer blockbuster, looking at what Hollywood has done with his idea and saying, have it on the right thing. I mean, I really can't help but think that that's the conversation happening here in this movie when like, say, uh, Jeff Goldblum is interrogating Hammond. Like, do you know what you have made? Do you know what you have done? I want to hear a review point. I really do. Yeah, don't you see the danger, uh, John, inherent? Uh, in what you're doing here, genetic power is the most awesome force the planet's ever seen, but you wield it like a, a kid that's found his dad's gun. It's hardly appropriate to start hurling generalizations. If I may, um, I'll tell you the problem with the scientific power that you're, that you're using here. Uh, it didn't require any discipline to attain it. You know, you read what others had done, and you, and you took the next step. You didn't earn the knowledge for yourselves, so you don't take any responsibility for it. You stood on the shoulders of geniuses uh, to accomplish something as fast as you could, and before you even knew what you had, you, you patented it and packaged it and slapped it on a plastic lunchbox, and now you're selling it. You want to sell it. Well, I, I don't think you're giving us our due credit. Our scientists have done things which nobody's ever done before. Yeah, yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. Okay, now granted, I'm sure that you're thinking like, Amy, that's a little bit overblown. Like Shirley Spielberg is like proud of everything that he's done. But Jurassic Park comes out at a time where I think Spielberg is really wrestling with his own legacy. Like he has yet to win an Oscar for anything that he's done. And he's watching as the movies that he has made that he thought were really personal to him, stuff like Close Encounters, N.E.T., because they made so much money. He feels like they weren't taken that seriously, that they were just seen as pop culture entertainment and not as like the serious movies he wants to do. So he's at this period where this year he's going to make Schindler's List and then get that Oscar and that credibility that he's been really fighting for. But he hasn't gotten that yet when he makes this movie. But in fact, Schindler's List gets greenlit because he's agreeing to make Jurassic Park and because he said he'll make Jurassic Park first because both the head of the studio and Spielberg himself think, once he makes a film like Schindler's List, he might never be able to make a Jurassic Park again. So I think you can say that he's looking at Jurassic Park maybe as the end of an era for himself as he becomes a different type of creator and entertainer. I'm so happy you led with this because it actually goes hand in hand with the theory I have about Spielberg and this movie. You know, throughout this whole podcast, we've talked a lot about Frank Capra and the idea that 
the idea of a Capra film has been very diluted from what it actually is. A Capra film is funny and biting and it's satirical at points, uh, but it gets kind of just washed away as, oh, it's a feel-good movie or it's a soft movie. And I think Spielberg often falls in the same camp. Oh, it's Spielberg. It's light. It's magical. It's special. But Spielberg is best when he has a bite or he has a little bit of um, a chip on his shoulder. And when you're talking about how he comes into this movie, he is bringing that chip. And I, and I mean that in the sense of this is also making fun of Walt Disney World, Universal Studios. Like it's 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 attacking all these things that he is very much a part of or becomes a part of, you know, John. Yeah, that he has created. Like when you look at when you look at they know there's a transcript of the meetings that he had with George Lucas when they were coming up with Raiders of the Lost Ark. And one of the things he says as they're brainstorming what that film will be is we're creating a theme park ride. And he did. And then this is a movie about a destructive theme park ride. Yeah. And I think there's a wonder and also an irritation with these big ideas. And you see it even a little bit in E.T., where the the villains are these, you know, men with guns. You know, they're, it's not just light and sweet. And obviously Schindler's List is not light and sweet. Uh, Munich is not light and sweet. But I think Spielberg is often put in this camp of, like, wonder and imagination. But all of his movies, even if you go back to Jaws and the mayor in Jaws wanting to open the beach, you know, he embraces this. And I think where maybe he deviates a little bit is like the opening uh, part of Jurassic Park in the book, uh, the prelude, if you will, is not like a velociraptor eating a guard. It's with these dinosaurs eating children on a beach. And he's like, "Ooh, that's a little too horrific. We can't start off a movie, a big summer movie with like children being eaten on a beach, even though I think they kind of do that in the second one. I just got to oh, no, remember. He does. He's yeah. like, we can't start off this franchise with that. But what about when we do the lost world? <laughs> we'll have it right here. Are you hungry? Take a bite. It's just beef. It's good. Come on. I won't hurt you. Mommy, daddy, you've got to come see this. But just going back to this film, I love these characters because you look at Alan Grant. It's a dark character. It's a dark character because we we introduce him being a dick to a child. What an awesome way to start a movie with a lead character. And we talked about this with Ripley and Aliens. And I want to kind of even zone in there a little bit about you know, saving a child and being a person who doesn't have these connections. But I love the way that they introduce him. Like he's, it's not all just fun, loving, great people that they're dark. All these people are dark. I mean, even Jeff Goldblum, he, you know, they're, they're multifaceted. They're not just these very cookie cutter cutouts, which I think we've gotten more and more into in a summer blockbuster. Okay. I would say that that child is being a dick to him. I mean, Listen to that kid. Even the word raptor means bird of prey. That doesn't look very scary. <laughs> More like a six foot turkey. <laughs> turkey, huh? Oh, no. 
I think that kid started it. And I kept thinking about how the this movie opened. The child started it, Amy? Yeah, the child, child started- totally started it. Child totally started it. And I, maybe I'm also just sensitive about that contact argument we had where I thought that kid was being a dick at the end. And like, and um, and Jodie Foster just sells out. I, maybe there's just danger every single time a little kid asks a professional question in a desert workplace setting that the adult <laughs> will always say something, you know, demented. But yeah, like what Sam Neill's big personality trait is he doesn't like kids. And over the course of the movie, he does like kids. Although I think he starts to like kids better once they're like traumatized by dinosaurs and don't talk as much. And then he's like, great, they're not as annoying. Now I can like kids because they're just oh, scared. And I don't in I don't know. You see, I don't necessarily feel like he likes kids. Like, I don't think that his journey is I like kids. I think he's just unaware of how to act around kids. One of the best little character moments, and this is what I'm getting into now because I've watched this movie so many times, is Jeff Goldblum saying, oh yeah, I have kids. I forgot that Jeff Goldblum has kids. You know, he's being very flirtatious with Laura Dern, who's also fantastic in this, and he's like touching her hair and he's talking about looking for the next, you know, um, Mrs. Malcolm. He's being the living embodiment of t-shirt unbuttoned, like, chaos. Uh, I mean, this is peak Goldblum, but there's a great moment where the kids are being attacked by the T-Rex and you know Alan Grant comes back into the car and he's like they're fine they're in the other Jeep and he's like wait but are they scared like did you check in like kids get scared like like he's the voice of reason so like I love this idea that you can constantly switch between different people like you know Jeff Goldblum is aware like Oh, no, we have to take care of these kids. I have kids. I'm aware of this. Like, Alan Grant isn't like, I don't care about kids. Fuck kids. He's like, oh, I don't even, I'm not even thinking about that. Kids are human beings. Um, So he's got to open himself up to the world. I mean, he's very much closed off. He lives in the desert. He's doing these experiments, you know, or digs. He's closed off from the world. So I would say that what happens to him is he has to open his worldview a little bit. Like he, like, it's not just like, I like kids. It's like, I actually have to care about other things. I mean, the only reason why he's here is because uh, they're going to fund his dig for the next three years. I mean, he's going there for a, a reason which is, again, selfish. You know, he he's just trying to sign off on it. He's not there to explore. He doesn't give a shit. You know, and I think there's a part of him also that feels like I'm in awe of this, but I'm also like, fuck. I'm done. My career is over. It's like, it's like, you know, it's like the the person who makes a CD looking at the MP3 and going like, no, okay, great. (laughs) I mean, I I think you're being a little hard on him, but I do think it's true that he prefers spending his time with things that are dead and therefore not annoying. Therefore not able to ask him like irritating Mm -hmm. questions. He likes bones. Bones are preferable to children, but he does like hardcore try to avoid kids. I mean, he like, Whatever car the little kid wants to ride in, he's like, I'm riding in the other one. You are yeah. annoying. Yeah. But I want to get your ta- take on how this conversation even comes about. Because it's like a running thing between him and Laura Dern. She keeps giving him these looks like, do you like kids? What if? What about now? You should have kids. Do you like kids? And I realized every single time I've watched this film, I've interpreted it as they're a couple debating whether or not to have kids in their own relationship. I mean, the kids they even wind up hanging out with a lot look like they could be their kids, right? They're sort of yeah. blonde and tan and rangy in all of the ways they are. But this watch, I was like, wait, are they even dating or am I just pretending that they're dating? Because they don't hold hands or kiss or act like a couple in any sort of way. And I realized, I think I've like layered a romance onto this film as though it already existed when maybe they're just contemplating it or maybe they're never even contemplating it maybe they're just buddies and she wants jeff goldblum to touch her hair 
Well, I mean, you see how Alan gets upset that he touches her hair, but he can't say anything because I don't think he's consummated it on that level. And I think that that is a fun push and pull. Again, he's so self-centered that, you know, like he's in a battle of not really caring outside of himself. He's so focused on himself. And I think he respects Laura Dern. But I, I, I also agree. I noticed that on this watch as well, that they're not... I always assumed they were a couple. They're not a couple. They just happen to be co-workers who he might have feelings for. But he also kind of gives Jeff Goldblum the go-ahead. Like, yeah, if you want to make a move, make a move. I mean, I'm, you know, that's it. I mean, you know, we're always interested in, in the science world in like male-male competition. Yeah. You know, who will reign supreme? And, you know, having only much, much, much now later realized that they're not a couple, I'm glad. You know, they get separated when the dinosaurs start attacking. And there's none of that like, I have to get to my boyfriend. It's more no. like, are the kids okay? They don't actually seem to talk that much about each other at all. And it frees them up to be like, I want to hang out with these dinosaurs and check out their poop. I'm going to be over here with this T-Rex. And she's incredibly competent. And I, I'll go again and say that one of the great defining factors of this film is everyone is competent. Even the little girl and the little boy, they bring something to the table. The boy is able to recognize dinosaurs. The girl is into computers, which is a throwaway line in the beginning. And then she helps them like hack the system at the end. You know, Jeff Goldblum has all this fun stuff that he's doing, but he's incredibly competent. Uh, Everyone is. And not only competent, but they are heroic in their own sense like no one is the one that needs to be saved right like the kids need help through but the kids are equally helping the adults well actually i'd say something a little bit different i mean i like that this is a movie with no action heroes you know that nobody in this movie is incredibly ripped even though jeff goldblum is making a point of showing off his pecs and abs and stuff as much as he can but of all of the people that you might expect to maybe save the day he looks like the action hero, you know, the black leather, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But he actually, I think, is the most incompetent in the film. I mean, he shows up, he snarks a lot, he raises some good questions. And then very early on, he's crushed inside of a toilet and can't like move or walk and has to be carried around. And he's basically inert. You know, Jeff Goldblum, the character in the book, dies. He like takes a bunch of morphine because he's hurt and then raves like a lunatic and dies. And I feel like if this Jeff Goldblum character died, you would miss out on his pectorals, but you wouldn't miss out on much else. Oh, I disagree. I feel like... And you'd miss out on his sequels. I mean, he makes a very valiant effort to save the kids. He just doesn't know anything about dinosaurs. Alan Grant does. He runs out with the stick. I think he fucks it up. He does, but he doesn't know because he doesn't know what he's doing. I think he... Like, I think he's trying to help. It's a totally botched moment. Like, I feel like Alan and him should have coordinated their their rescue plan because he runs out like a second later um yeah like so alan has, has the flare lights it throws the flare mm-hmm. the tiny the tyrannosaurus is about to go after the flare and then jeff goldman's like let me throw another flare and he gets his attention well, and like, the dinosaur it. like yeah. stops from running away chases him and like crushes him in a toilet and then bites off the head of of uh of the lawyer which of is the a lawyer very, Martin again Ferraro. a very pointed uh spielberg kind of reference i will say this To your point about Jeff Goldblum, he is the voice of reason. He is the only voice of reason before shit hits the fan. He's the one who gives that speech that you just played. Like, he's the one who questions the entire park before 
their life is in danger. And the but idea is he of, reasonable or is he just kind of a jerk on Twitter who's like cynical about everything? No. I, okay. I mean, I could spend a lot of time defending Ian Malcolm. Look, I think he has a personality, but he understands something. And I think what is so interesting about him is everyone else is looking at the majesty and he is looking at the reality of it. Like, well, wait, hold on one second. You know, like he questions it immediately. Wait, what do you mean? How do you know they're all female? Like he automatically is the one who is asking the question of what's safe here and, and and how do you deem what's safe? And no one pays attention to it because, oh, well, it's going to be safe. It's going to be safe. They, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Don't be, don't rain on our parade. And so I think he he's doing a majority of the heavy lifting in the first part of the movie. I'll, I will also say this is a movie full of exposition dumps. If you need to take a master class in explaining a million things. This movie does such a brilliant job of establishing everyone in a fun way and then also letting you learn. Like you feel smarter leaving this movie. You learn about Amber, you learn about you learn about dinosaurs, you learn about reproductive systems, you learn about uh you know this idea of cloning with the frogs. Everything is positioned in a way where it doesn't feel like you're just getting exposition dump, exposition dump, exposition dump. You remember the glass of water and the one droplet like they do this so well, and every single character in that opening 25, 30 minutes is just going, here's another thing that you need to know. And most movies, I would argue, would never do that now. It's like, hey, we created dinosaurs. How? Clone it. Move on. Like, here they really do a good job of at least establishing science that makes sense and everyone being a smart part of explaining it to the audience so all this stuff works for you. I think that that's what makes this movie scarier. Like, it makes it scarier than Jaws because Jaws is just a crazy beast that has no knowledge for anything. Like, I these, think he's just a beast. He's a beast. I mean, by the way, he should be a beast. He's an animal. He's a beast. He's a little, literally a beast. But he's not crazy. Movie, he's a very smart beast. He's a smart beast. But I guess in this, what this movie is saying is, yes, these are animals. It's almost like the, it's almost like the answer to Jaws. Jaws is like, this is an animal doing animal things. Yes, Jaws 4, it seems like Jaws has a whole point of view. Uh, maybe even Jaws 3, he has a point of view. But here, these are just animals existing. They're smart. They're figuring out their surroundings. But the humans are the bad people here. The humans are the enemies. Like, John Hammond is the straight-up enemy in this. Like, the only oh. reason... He is! He is! <laughs> and, I mean, and I think that there's something really cool about that because these animals are not doing anything bad like we talk about like jurassic world they're all fucking geeked out these you know we mix yeah, tyrannosaurus like with this yeah. and it's like fuck all that like this is just zoo it's a zoo and it's a zoo that you know was not properly thought out uh on, on many respects well they're and still thinking it out i'll just say it outright I'm Team Hammond. Maybe because we're in a mood where like I'm really sick of cynicism and I want to have optimism and I want to have that majesty mm -hmm. that that Ian Malcolm waves away. I want there to be an, a seemingly impossible challenge and people figure out how to fix it, not just be like, ah, eh, fuck it, bomb the island. This will never work. Like I'm in the mood to follow somebody like Hammond and have the team show up. I mean, if he had just had Laura Dern... And, and Sam Neill show up earlier to give him advice on like plants to plant and stuff. Yeah. If he had incorporated expertise earlier, it'd be fine. He's still incorporating it now a little late, but like the park has yet to be opened. 
I think there was a chance that Jurassic Park could have been really great. And I'd rather believe in somebody like Hammond. I mean, yes, in the book, Hammond is a straight up villain. He's a lot more concerned about like money and profits, stuff that they put into the the mouth of the lawyer here. Because I think Spielberg was interested in the idea of can a creative genius who means well go awry? Have I gone awry? And I think in making that character nicer, you make him more complex. I mean, this is a type of character that you would expect in any version of this movie to die. Like he created it, therefore he must atone for his sins by getting torn apart by a raptor or even just squashed by a brontosaurus, something humiliating. Oh, absolutely, yeah. But that he lives, I think, is one of the perverse things I like about Spielberg wrangling with this. Like, he doesn't have to die because he fucked up, because maybe there's hope in this world of creating awe and wonder. And I'd rather have that hope. I mean, listen to the way that, like, Hammond sounds when he watches one of his raptor eggs get hatched. Come on. Come on. Come on, then. There you are. There you are. There. They imprint on the first creature they come in contact with. That's it. Helps them to trust me. I've been present for the birth of every little creature on this island. I mean, if you want to talk about, like, fatherhood in this movie, I think that not only is this a movie about Sam Neill getting comfortable with the idea of parenthood, This is about a father himself witnessing his creation. Hammond is a father. And in fact, even the raptors are fathers when they mutate and turn themselves from like female into male. It's about three different types of creatures becoming fathers, which, you know, of those, I'm aligned with Hammond the most. I want to do you you just think Hammond should like be arrested and sent to The Hague? Because I think Hammond should just be given more help. No, I I don't. I don't view Hammond as like an evil person but this is why i can't always figure you out amy because i feel like you run down one path and then you're looking at something else and you feel completely different about it which is like this is you didn't think about should it be done you just do it and that's like we were talking about these blockbusters like they're just copies of copies like that that's what john hammond is john hammond isn't thinking about he's so excited that he can do it that he is not thinking about all the other things that could get in its way, right? It's like, we're just going to keep on doing this and breaking it and being it bigger and bigger and bigger. Like, I'm not starting small. I'm starting huge. And I agree with you. Like, I like John Hammond. I think he's a lovable character. But doesn't mean that he's not flawed. I think one of the most devastating shots in the entire film is at the end when they're escaping the island. And you watch John Hammond essentially watch the destruction of his world. Like, it's... And you can't feel that way if he's not likable like i don't think he's here to like i'm here to make dinosaurs into you know a military <laughs> experiment which I'm i think is you go and make dinosaurs and i'm all out of gum yeah like i think that there's this idea that the jurassic world he's not shit, you're right he's not like he's not like um wayland yutani no if we're gonna like in this film to aliens yeah no i think so i think there's something really pure about it but i also think the idea that the dinos are imprinting on him Versus other dinos is a weird thing. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I want them to imprint on me. It's almost like a stepdad coming in and saying, no, 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 I'm your real dad now. Now I'm your real dad. So I I see where there's a, a genuine like love. Like, no, no, they need to imprint on me. But I also see how that's some that's really bad, too. It doesn't make sense. Like you're subverting the natural way of things. I mean, if you just made vegetarians, though, it would all be fine. Like, are you going to tell me? 
that you would not go to a Jurassic Park if it opened up. Well, that's the problem. I would. Yeah, if me I too. Afford it, but but is it safe? Do it's I care? Same, it's well, I like carnival well, rides. Well, let's talk about carnival rides. There was a tragedy this week about a carnival ride, oh, right? No. Set up in that town. It's this kind of. Um, oh no, I miss it. Yeah, like uh, I don't even know what you would call it. it. It's kind of like a carousel, not a carousel, like a Ferris wheel, but it goes very fast upside down, and it tipped over. Every time oh, I no. go to one was of these like local, hurt? yeah. Oh, no. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to bum out the. I don't want to bum out by bringing all this up because it's one in many, right? There's always some sort of fucking accident at these like local fairs that pop up. And I remember as a kid, you would go to these fairs and you hope, like, I want to go. There's a fair in my town. There's amusement park rides in my town. Let me go. Like, I, there's one down the block from my house uh, every summer. You know, I, we'll see if it comes back this year. But this idea that. Let's go. And you don't think about it because it just seems fun. But who's setting it up? Who's making sure that the safety protocols are followed? Like, these are the questions that we don't always ask because the fun is there. And I think that that's what Jeff Goldblum is saying. Jeff Goldblum is saying, okay, hold on a second. How do we know that this is okay? Like, and that's the whole premise of the movie. The premise of the movie is, is this safe? Is this park safe? Someone was just killed here when you're transporting a dinosaur to the island in the most in the most uh, intense of security uh, protocols. Like, and they're like, hold up, hold up. If this is happening before we open it, we should ask some questions. I mean, that's the whole premise isn't like, whoa, that's what Jurassic World is. The park is open and now shit goes crazy. This is, we shouldn't even ever open this. It's not safe. Ah, safety's overrated. I mean, if I die on a spinning carnival ride, that's great. Like, I think that would be a perfectly fine way wow. to go. I'd, I'd like for me to be the only person who dies. If somebody else doesn't want to die on that carnival ride, I hope that they survive. I'll take the hit. But Man like, alive. That's cool as hell. It's the fact that they seem <laughs> risky that I think make those rides more fun. If you don't think I already have my ticket for the county fair and I'm going to ride all of the rattliest rides, oh, you are mistaken. You are mistaken. I'd rather do that than... You know, wait three hours to try to see some sort of stage managed master blaster, whatever they're calling the new web shooting thing at Disneyland, where nothing interesting will ever happen. Okay, well, that's, you know, look, I'm I'm not going to get into your death wish, but I will (laughs) I, I, I will say that, you know, this this large part of the movie is and and not to keep on repeating myself is like just because you can do something, is it the right thing to do? And I think you can bring that to so many parts of of life. You could do that with creation. You can do that. I mean, cre- let's talk about that as far as creation. You're talking about this movie being a dad movie. Yeah. Should you bring life into the world just because you biologically can? No, I don't think you should. Do people do it? Absolutely. Should you create, a, you know, a park and cut corners? You know, no, but people do it like, you know, to make money. It's like, you know, uh, should we release all these movies that were supposed to be in theaters on VOD? No, it kills the movie theater experience, but we're doing it to make money. There's always this idea of like, we can do it. Why are we doing it? And we have to ask those questions. So I do think on a larger scale, going back to your original idea about Spielberg, he is asking a big question. I can make this. Do I need to make this? Is it worthy of making it? Why am I making it? And that's kind of, I guess, you know, the point of view of any director. And 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 I think it's the reason why this movie feels a little bit more elevated than Jaws. Jaws is a straight horror movie. This movie 
has all the elements of Jaws, but is a little bit more of a metaphor, whether it's a metaphor about uh, being a father, being, uh, you know, creation, the dangers of just entertainment, right? Uh, There's so much more being said here, and you're still getting all the frights. If you want to look at this movie on the most basis of levels, you will have the best time. But there's a lot underneath the surface that makes this movie way more interesting than uh, a monster in the house type of film. I mean, I want you to know that I am empathetic to your argument. Like, I will say of the Spielberg summer blockbuster oeuvre, Mm -hmm. that my personal favorite, the one that is the one that I could never change the channel on if it's on, is Raiders. I mean, me too. And and yet, I think Raiders would be the one I'd be most willing to let go of on our list of films to go to space because it is such an honorific ode to the adventure serials of yore. You know, part of me would just rather say like, you know what, let's dig out like Zorro or the Three Musketeers or Gunga Den or one of the like original adventure ones and put that on the list instead. There's a part of me that would be willing to make that trade. But then when you get into Jaws versus Jurassic Park, Yes, Jaws starts the summer blockbuster. I don't necessarily feel as though firsts are always best. And I'm glad that we get to have that conversation on this show, that just because something did it first doesn't mean it's the one that we have to treasure. It is interesting to me, this argument about Jurassic Park having a conversation about the role of what a summer blockbuster is instead of just starting it inadvertently the way that Jaws did. And even fold inside of that, There's a secondary conversation that this film is having that I don't even think it meant to have when it was first greenlit, which is not only am I creating an epic summer blockbuster, I'm creating a new style of making film, a new type of computer animation. And that is what will multiply and go forth and wind up controlling what we see on screens. I mean, when Jurassic Park gets made, like 1993, this is the time where like the little kid, Ariana Richards can still pretend to be entranced by the idea of a CD-ROM inside of a car. It's an interactive oh, CD-ROM! Look, see, you just touch the right part of the screen and it talks about what you want. I mean, Paul, I've seen your fancy wheels. Your kids are like, touch screens? That's like oh. nothing, man. It's like, sure. It's like kids ex- get angry at commercials. They don't understand why they can't just say what they want to watch and immediately watch it. I'm like... <laughs> That's not how the world works. Like, but when we go to a hotel, it's like, no, what is this? Why can't I pick what I want? I'm like, wow, I guess they've just been so ingrained in, you know, Apple TV. They can pick whatever they want, whenever they want. They got access. But yeah, I mean, you're right. Like there, this is the beginning of the end. This is the beginning of the technology domination age in cinema. You know, when they start to green light this film and get it made, Of course, like one of the first people that they turn to is, you know, the great Stan Winston, who I don't think we really talked about enough when we did our Aliens episode. He's the guy who made like the 15 foot tall alien queen Mm. in that film and does, I think, great puppet work in this film. I think they're expecting to do mostly puppet work and some kind of old school type of stop motion animation. You can even see some of the versions of stop motion animation that they like came up with online. You can watch the whole raptor fight, but done with stop motion animation and like puppet children instead of the actors. It's pretty funny, but it looks immediately old school because it is in the pre-production of this film that they learn that there is a new type of computer animation where they can animate these dinosaurs and make them look real. And they're not even quite sure it will work as they're shooting the movie. They're like, hopefully this will work. Hopefully like our people screaming at nothing at green screens 
will have something worthwhile to scream at, but it's all absolutely brand new. So they're making a type of filmmaking, the puppeteering that Stan Winston does so well, even here, you know, building a triceratops, digging a hole under the triceratops. You have eight puppeteers, you know, wrangling it and making it breathe and climbing in and out of the tri- uh, the triceratops's ass to like get some air, you know, that type of craftsmanship that, you know, Spielberg was in love with since the time he saw King Kong when he was a little kid is going extinct because of what he creates here. And now we have blockbusters that are nothing but CG stuff that flies by and means nothing because it feels featherweight. It's not done with the gravity. I mean, also just to put this in the technological context, a couple years before this movie came out, ILM didn't even own a single computer. They didn't own a single computer. And when Jurassic Park comes out after Jurassic Park, they only had three computers. You have more computers than that right now, like in your studio. I mean, that is how rapidly we became dependent on technology after this fact. I mean, it's interesting, like when this movie comes out, Jeff Goldblum goes on Letterman and all Letterman wants to do is talk about this new type of acting called green screen acting because Letterman can't get his head around it. So we were um, acting to nothing. We would have to go, oh, oh there's a dinosaur. And, um, <laughs> or better than that. Now, but don't that. you, do you feel ever silly doing that? Because acting is reacting. Isn't that really acting? Yes. Yeah, so yes. don't you feel silly about that? Well, it's play. It's like being a kid and playing. It's the essence of acting, I guess, playing. But I did feel silly early on. Spielberg would kind of um, uh, talk us through it like a silent movie. He'd say, okay, roll the camera. Okay, now you're looking at the dinosaur, and now it's, it's, there's a big cow being lowered down into its pen, and it's going wild. It's eating the dinosaur, and you're kind of, and you're disgusted, but you're thrilled. And, now, and then he'd start to, through a bullhorn, make the sounds of a dinosaur, and he'd go, <laughs> There's the genius of Steven Spielberg right there. And there's a lot of interesting stuff that people can look at if they're curious about like how all of the special effects were developed. Like one of the things that you know I won't play now, but you can find it online, is a whole video of Steven Spielberg sitting around a table with a bunch of people playing with toys. He's literally a grown man playing with action figures of dinosaurs and trucks and showing people how he wants the animation to look and how he thinks things can move and debating over whether or not the raptors can see from both sides of their head like birds or if they see straight ahead, like how will you know where the audience knows that the raptor is looking? All of that's really interesting. But you know me, Paul. Like, you know that, of course, the thing that I'm really going to get drawn, drawn to is the actual animal sounds that they use to create oh, the sounds amazing. of the dinosaurs. Um, that, you know, for like the raptor, they use dolphins. They use hissing geese. They use the mating call of an African crane. They use tortoises just actually going at it. And they used a walrus. They really relied on a walrus, which surprised me. Until I listened to this astonishing tape of everything that a walrus can do with its mouth. Are you ready for this? This yes. is a definite hold on to your butts. pop quiz you, Paul. I want to see how many animals you can name that created the T-Rex. There's six of them. I'll give you six guesses and I'll tell you how many you got right. Okay. Um, well, I will say bear. 
Uh, I will say uh, a snake. Um, I will say a hippo. I will say otter and a dog. And then um, I'm going to add in some sort of like a a bird, like a, a crow. Oh, man. You only got one right, Buckaroo. What? Oh, no. <laughs> you got the dog. They also used elephants, alligators, penguins. I guess that could count as a bird. I don't know. Sort of stretching it from your, from your argument. Tigers and the blowhole of a whale. Wow. Interesting. Isn't that interesting? I just, yeah. I love imagining the DJs coming up with all of this in their little office. Like, Rick, Rick, Rick. I mean, if they can come up with this, I, would, I wish that John Williams would have come up with a slightly more innovative score. <laughs> well, that's a whole other conversation. It is. But you did know that, like, I don't think that raptors were considered that popular before this movie came out. They weren't. They weren't. He, they kind of revolutionized the raptor so much that two years later, that's when the NBA decided, you know what? Our new franchise in Toronto, we're going to call them the raptors. There's a direct impact from this movie. So congratulations. And only later, later did we even discover that raptors basically looked like turkeys. They're like the size of turkeys and covered in feathers. <laughs> Well, I think this movie definitely popularized that idea that dinosaurs were descendants of birds. You know, I feel like that was something that that was in, obviously, uh, educational circles, but not like in popular circles. And I think that this movie did do a good job of of introducing us to new and different beasts and creatures and what they actually were like versus what we thought they were like, you know, uh, out of those stop motion animation movies and into something a little bit more realistic. For sure. I have never looked at an ostrich the same way again. Oh, an ostrich would have been a good guess. They didn't use it. And I think that there's two things at play with this. First of all, let me just say, just to put some stats on this, it's kind of fascinating. Um, there are only 15 minutes of dinosaur footage in this movie. Nine minutes are Stan Winston animatronics, and six minutes are ILM CGI. So that's, you know, when you think about this movie, it's pretty shocking how small it is. And and it goes back to, yes, the man who made Jaws is capable of creating uh, tension and uh, and and thrilling things by just showing you glimpses. Right. And he does a great job of that. He does and I think, a lot with leaves. I mean, the fact that it's at night and uh, it's raining helps the whole thing. I know that they have to really kind of work to get it tonight. Um but it's beautiful. It's beautifully done. It still holds up really well. Um, but to your point, I think Spielberg's inclination was to go bigger, badder, crazier. And all the people that were involved in the film that were of the science variety say, no, 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 no. You cannot do this. Like Spielberg wanted to make the, the velociraptors have these like forked tongues. You know, he... Ugh, uh, I'm so sick of tongues. I know. I mean, especially those like weird... Uh, very uh, excuse the term, but like vaginal aliens that we've been now like really embraced. These like the it's, it's too They're much. terrible. Um, but you know, people are like no, no, you can't do that. The, you know, you have to do something a little bit more scientifically accurate. He wanted the you know wanted dinosaurs to be bigger. Like he wanted this, um, you know, wanted this uh, this kind of creature that was like a uh, a hawk and a rattlesnake and a monkey. He was constantly. Sp- talked out of fabricating these fake dinosaurs. And the only one that really, I think, exists in the film, and maybe I'm wrong, but from what I understand, is the one that kills Nedry. The one that kills Nedry is a fake dinosaur, does not exist, made for the the film. Yes. Um, And I think there's something really cool about this idea of 
when you're talking about grounding it, he was forced to ground it. We now are not far forced to ground anything. Right before we recorded this, I just watched a YouTube, a YouTube trailer of Ryan Reynolds dressed as Deadpool sitting next to Korg from Thor Ragnarok doing a reaction video to the trailer of Fall Guy, which Ryan Reynolds is in. And that's not for anyone to see, but on YouTube. And you have a fully like CGI character next to another. Like we are we are past the point of like now this is for fun. You can swap faces out easily. You could do all this sort of stuff. And I think that when we when we start to build out our world and we have to make it bigger and better and crazier, what happens is we just the yes, creation and everything is so amazing, but they cease to have a connection. Like we don't even understand what's real about these things anymore. Like it's a sort of thing like it's like all these CGI monsters blend together because I don't even know what that is. I don't even know what that is. So yeah, I guess like these tentacles and heads and arms. That's why I like that new Godzilla King Kong movie. I'm like, I recognize that as Godzilla. I recognize that as King Kong. Like I'm in, I'm engaged in simply seeing things that I recognize on a grander scale, not, you know, vaginal tentacle monsters running after people. Like, I, I don't know. There's, I, I just feel like Spielberg was kept in line here. Uh, and I think it makes the movie better. No, I think you're right. I mean, even at the time he's talking about that, he when he makes Jurassic Park, he even compares what he's doing here to something like Alien. He's like, you know, in Alien, that animal or the alien can take like any form you want, you know, because it doesn't exist in history or physiology. But I have to create something that the little kids know and recognize. So maybe, I mean, I do believe and i hate that i keep coming back to this because it makes me seem fascist but i do think great art is sometimes created when there are limitations to push against or justify or to perfect rather than like come up with some sort of squiggle monster and go you know i that said i also do rail that i feel like part of why i don't like are fine squiggly tongue vaginal monsters it's just because mm-hmm. there's so many of them and i feel like if you're going to use pixels to create anything at least create something different. I'm really sick of it. What can you make? What can you show me that feels new? The way that, say, in Attack the Block, those like glow-in-the-dark uh, black fluff balls felt different to me, at mm-hmm. least. They felt fresh. I'm just tired of being bored by an endless toolbox. I feel like if we have an endless toolbox, I should never be bored. Things should, like, people should stay interesting and not just do whatever the trendiest slither beast is. Yeah, you know, and I, I'm also... Just going back to what we talked about before in that this movie only has 15 minutes of footage. It is the it sets the bar for the future. And I think what also happens here is we lose some of the amazing directing skill because we can actually do 40 minutes of CGI. I just did a movie that has like 10,000 shots of CGI and there's not a single fucking creature in it. It's all stadiums and crowds and stuff like that, Um, which is great. But, yeah, there's so much CGI that people don't realize is CGI. Like, I mean, the, yeah. the names of the stores and the buildings and everything. Like, subtle CGI is fascinating and a little and a little airless. Well, you can start to just change everything. And I think one of the things that I really miss, and one of the things I really paid attention to in this, is how good of a director Spielberg is. And I know that that's doesn't need to be overstated, but. You watch the shots and the composition of these shots, the way that that person is killed in the beginning of the movie, 
you watch the hand slip away and it, it tells you so much. The sound, it's like he's using so many things. I even noticed for the first time when the T-Rex is stomping on the overturned, you know, ride vehicle with the kids in it, they're going into mud. Like half of the of the trailer is or the truck is going into mud. So there's like a again, just visually, like you're watching them like get eaten by the earth. Uh, you know, uh it's it's just, I think, really impressive when you watch really beautiful shot composition that allows you to exist outside of the the CGI world. I think that Ryan Johnson, you know, we talk about him a lot in Blockbusters, did that uh, in in The Last Jedi. I think that you can see that a lot in some of the, you know, Marvel movies or, or Edgar Wright, you know, these practical things. Like, I think Baby Driver is one of a great example of just really exciting it's like where you talk about baby driver once a week lately i I don't really just like ascended for you i don't know why i think what i i think why i've gone back to it a handful of times is like it's one of the rare things of like oh a lot of practical things you know and i don't i don't know no you know it's sometimes you can just get lost in in everything and and i feel like i just like seeing something like oh i i can I can see this. You can, I can understand this a little bit more. Like Transformers, I don't know where the fight is starting and ending. I don't know what's going on on the screen. Just a lot of shit is happening. So uh, if there's other movies, and I'm sure there are, uh, I just look at that. Like, you know, it's like, yes, I can talk about no sudden moves, but that's not like a big action movie. I mean, but beautiful camera work. But I think like when you combine like summer blockbuster with practical effects, it's a little bit few and far between, I think. Yeah, I mean, the tactile is good. I like... Like Laura Dern shoving her hand into the mound of Triceratops poop. Mm-hmm. Like it, it is real. It is real mud, you know, and it looks gross and it's got, I think like honey all over it so that the flies will be buzzing and you get a shutter. Like that is a satisfying shutter and it's a better shutter than you would get than if they like CG'd the poop to be even more disgusting. It's just perfect as well, it yeah. is. Like you can feel and imagine and smell this movie. And I appreciate that, even though in that opening scene, I kept that you that you keep describing as good as it is. I kept being like, man, Spielberg's really ripping off his own Indiana Jones here. Right. It's like there's a bunch of people. There's a secret box. You're huffing around. It looks like a temple set. Even the music that John Williams is doing here sounds a little Raidersy to me. I don't know. What do you think? Joffrey, raise the gate. you know, you do it well, I guess you can just keep ripping it off. I was really caught for some reason. This is a question um, that I just want to ask you. The guy who dies in the beginning, he has a tiny callus on his fingertip. And I just, I don't remember seeing that many calluses in movies kind of ever. And I was thinking to myself, do we need more calluses in movies? It just made his hand seem real. He looked like a real guy. He had just some weird, small, Ooh, tiny like little that. callus. Like, would we CG out the callus now? Uh, I don't think we'd CGI out the callus. But, you know, it's funny you, you say this. I think I'm going to just bring it out to a bigger idea. What's interesting about this movie, for the most part, and again, put ourselves in the 1993 version of this. These are all faces that we really haven't seen. Like, yes, they all are famous, but the fame they all achieved after this movie, like Sam Neill is not Harrison Ford. If Harrison Ford is in this movie, it's a different movie. I think this movie has yeah. very much 
uh, the hangover effect. I think the reason why we love the hangover or we loved the hangover, I haven't watched it in a while, uh, is because we feel like we're meeting these people for the first time. We're finding these people for the first time. Like this is peak Goldblum, but this is like, this was interesting. Gold. Like this is, we now know Jeff Goldblum as one of these amazing actors who, you know, I think he's made, you know, doing ID4 after this. And he's, he's made a, a, a big career of, of, I think, being these kind of interesting characters. Yeah, uh, but he's still and, kind of a cult weirdo here. And so is Laura right. Dern. You know, Laura, Laura Dern, Dern is yeah. doing like wild at heart. I mean, it's Nicolas Cage who tells Laura Dern, her co-star in Wild at Heart, that she has to do Jurassic Park. He's like, I've always wanted to do a dinosaur movie. You totally have to do yeah. a dinosaur movie. Please do a dinosaur movie. But these are oddballs. They're not the obvious choices. No, it's, I mean, it makes it so much more exciting. I think it makes yeah. it more like real. Like, and even I was that really guy, struck yeah. by like Samuel L. Jackson in this movie because this comes out the year before Pulp Fiction. Mm-hmm. And the way that Samuel L. Jackson talks here is so different because like in, in Pulp Fiction, he really leans into that like kind of malevolent preacher voice. That yeah. he uses there and then therefore uses in basically the rest of his career. Like, get these snakes off oh, this really? plane. But he's really not using it here. And it almost here. threw me off. I, I was like, is that really Sam Jackson if he's not talking like Sam Jackson? Even listen to the way that he says, hold on to your butts. Like, listen to this and then imagine how you think Sam Jackson would deliver the line, hold on to your butts now in a post-Pulp Fiction world. Hold on to your butts. I mean, can you do it? Can you say what you think, how you think he would sound No, out? because you know what? I do think that like Sam Jackson, you know, this is early Sam Jackson. I think there's a lot of interesting early Sam Jackson. He's, he's Bayou. We talked about that, you know, a couple weeks yeah, ago. Like, I love him know, in that movie. He's great. Like, I think he has a lot more range and he's always fantastic. But I think there's a certain level of sometimes you get like, you get the Sam Jackson that you want, right? There's a story that he told on Howard Stern where he's like, don't give me a note. If you're going to give me a note, hire a different actor because you're, I know what, I know what to do. Let me do my thing. And I think, you know, for better or for worse, uh, 95% of the time I'm like, yeah, B does know his thing. I'm all, I'm all on board. Like he seems great. Uh, But he has become Nicolas Cageian, right? Where, uh, I I don't know. I I don't know where he's like either, he's either, Acting, which I can't remember the last time was that I saw him disappear into a character or he's just doing the thing that you really love him doing. So he's just going to embody that full spirited. I really want to look at his like body of work because it all again, it blends. He obviously works a lot, uh, but I do believe that he puts out like some pretty exciting performances. I still am always excited to see him. And I feel like he's when he is in these things that are not uh like deep blue sea or something like that. He make he elevates. Like he definitely elevates. Um, you know, I like him as Nick Fury too. I mean, I like. I don't know. I I like. I like what he does. I don't know. I I I I'm, I'm all not saying in. I, I know hate it. Saying. I'm just saying it was interesting to see a fresher version of him that I hadn't I mean, seen in a minute. Hitman's wife. I think he's a little different, right? I'm looking is he? through. Yeah, I think he's not that kind of character, but maybe maybe he is. I, you know, it's tricky. It's tricky to kind of separate. Him, I'm trying to like look at all of his other work and go like, all right, maybe that's that. You know, well, uh, the banker yeah. was okay. Hateful Eight is a little. Actually, bit the different. banker was good. I'll say the banker was he was a good actor in the banker. That's the one where he's like um, one of the first uh, black bankers in America. So he's yeah, and it was, talking a lot it, about money and real estate. 
And that, unfortunately, that, was a good that movie Nobody was saw that movie. Uh, well because it hit a controversy when it came out uh, about the lead character, and so it was kind of oh, that's right. It was kind of like shuttered off to the side when it was, I think, leading up to be a very big, you know, award kind of film, and it was yeah. I kind think of, the character that what was it? The character that Anthony Mackie played, the real mm-hmm. life guy, actually turned out to be like a pedophile. Yeah, he was yeah. a sexual abuser. Yeah, so oh, um, that's too uh, bad. Sister, Samuel Jackson's yeah. like, I guess I can't ever. Well, it's, like, it's hard again. to like to speak about these people and then be like, well, and also, um, but uh, but I guess like, just to put this back in that context, I said Harrison Ford, right? He turned it down. William Hurt turned it down. Uh, Kurt Russell William turned Hurt it down. William Hurt would be interesting. Yeah, like Kevin Costner considered, Mel Gibson considered, you know, John too Hammond. Action-y, too action-y. Yeah, yeah, like Sean Connery turned down John Hammond. Clint Eastwood considered. I mean, who knows what considered is, you know? But when you look at all these people. It does. It, you just believe them a little bit more. You just you don't you're not coming in with any preconceived notion. I mean, now we know all these people and and, and we want to see them do more of this stuff or we like certain things. But even the the guy that the lawyer meets on the, um, you know, when he's coming to visit the uh, the mining of the uh, of the amber, like that guy that he meets on the. Uh, on the, in that facility, like I recognize that face. He's been in a million things, but it's not like right now. This would only be huge actors, and we've we've de- that's definitely the Marvelization of it. Every Marvel actor is a Academy Award nominated huge star. They've been in a bunch of different stuff. I think that one of the coolest things about movies in big movies and why they work is because you're discovering people. I think that that you know I think Pulp Fiction does a little mix and match. I think that uh, this movie definitely is I'm discovering these people I'm I'm on this journey I I love that idea and I think that summer blockbusters has that ability because the concept is so big that you don't need the actors to be as big but now I think we're like the actors need to be as big as the concept or no one's going to go see it yeah which is a, a bummer because I don't even know if that's necessarily true to be honest like, mm-hmm. I don't think people are going to see the Avengers movies for the individual actors. And I think even Marvel kind of knows that, which is why I don't think they pay them superstar amounts of money. You know, they're like, you But here, they know that they can it. go make it. They know yeah, that, they, like, know that yeah. they can go make it. And then they have to stay like in fighting shape for like the rest of their lives. But, you know, actually, one of the people who I think also auditioned for the Dr. Ellie Sattler um, character was Gwyneth Paltrow, who I heard that. Yeah, I adore as an actress. Like you can, her audition tape is actually online too, and I'm so glad they didn't pick her because she was like 21, I think, when she auditioned. And how are you supposed to buy her as like, you know, a paleobiologist who spent several years working in the field? She'd only be a student at that time, and it would just I don't. I hate it when they cast actresses who are too young to play like professional people where you know that they didn't have the time to like actually get the degree yet. And so you can't take that entire character seriously because then it makes it clear they're just there to be like a pretty babe. I mean, that's what they did to Nicole Kidman in uh, Days of Thunder. I think that's the most egregious one because like Nicole Kidman in that movie is also maybe 21 and she's supposed to be the world's top neurosurgeon. And you're like, come on, just wait. So are you saying that you don't believe that Denise Richards uh, her nuclear uh, scientist character in the James Bond movie is realistic. Christmas Jones. Oh, her absolutely. What? She's at least 25 in that movie. So she had time. Go to <laughs> grad the school. Best, the best terrible James Bond line. <laughs> I thought Christmas only comes once a year. Blackout. Here we go. Oof. Rough, oh. rough ending of that James Bond movie. 
of course, we can't talk about the actors here without talking about Wayne Knight as Nedry. Uh, I mean, great to me. Wayne Knight is like synonymous with guy in kid movie that's there for you to like groan and grumble at because mm-hmm. maybe it's because i just rewatched space jam you know, because i do my research when i watch a new space jam movie i, I mean i watched it to too yeah. things he's nice in space jam though he's okay and this he's I think not he's like actually, a, he's not a dick yeah. is what i'm saying like he's like he's the bedraggled like oh mr jordan mr jordan not the new you know not the newman kind of yeah. hello you know he's not he's not the the mustache twirler at that point no and here i think he's somewhere in between too i was trying to study the shades of wayne knight as i was watching this mm-hmm. movie because i realized i think of him as just kind of popping in as the same guy but actually all these characters are pretty different from each other i like that dennis nedry is honestly you know a guy who just feels like he's being exploited by his capitalist boss and isn't getting paid his worthwhile due of course then you see that like his desk is as mess as a mess and he's also like a whiner but the idea that maybe if john hammond paid his workers better better like uh, you know jeff bezos should perhaps none of this would have happened in the first place is mildly interesting and the idea that spielberg cast wayne knight from watching him in a movie that i totally forgot he was in I'll just insert a little mental drum to myself. Basic instinct. Whoa. Do you remember that he's in this? He's in the scene where Sharon Stone crosses her legs. This wow. They have this interaction right here. There's uh, no smoking in this building, Miss Trammell. What are you going to do? Charge me with smoking? I mean, the story is, is that Spielberg went to go see Basic Instinct because, of course, you know, mm-hmm. just because he makes a lot of films for kids doesn't mean he likes adult movies. And that when he was watching Wayne Knight in that movie sweating, he thought, what if I could make that guy sweat? But instead of open legs, he's sweating at a dinosaur. So he waited until the credits ran. And then he like looked up who Wayne Knight was. And he was like, that guy's definitely in the movie. I don't even think he made him audition. Wow. I mean, he's so great. There's a, that opening scene where he meets the guy at the cafe and is announcing that he's there. Like, he's a perfect dick. And but he's also not like overtly evil either. Like, and that's the thing. It's like these characters are not like just black and white. Um, his death sequence is great and it's sloppy without being like fat guy sloppy like which i think is an easy go to yeah, fat guy sloppy you know uh but you know it's like obviously you put wayne knight in something like uh like you said space jam jurassic park and seinfeld and then all of a sudden now we have an image of wayne knight and i think it's like oh this dick but you know it like there's so much he's i think he's really great again everyone yeah. is like pulling their weight here and you I mean, know, even, if anything, I think he dies just because he's disrespectful. Like he's the disrespectful to the to the I almost said that, aliens. Uh, yes, he yeah. is. He tries to make the dinosaur play fetch with him. Listen. Look at me. I just fell down a hill. I'm soaking wet. I don't have any food. I have no food on me. I have nothing on me. Come on. Come on. Play fetch. Play fetch. Play fetch. Look. See stick. See stick. Yeah. Yeah. Look. 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 Stick. Look. Stick. Stick. Stupid. He didn't have to play that. I remember he's not trying. He's trying to get look, this is a a fucking live dinosaur two feet away from his face. He doesn't know anything. I mean, this is the other thing about it. He also doesn't know anything about dinosaurs. He if he knew how dangerous that dinosaur was, he'd be like, uh, I'm like, he's not afraid of it because he's too stupid to be afraid of it. And that's kind of the same thing with John Hammond is. He's too stupid to be afraid of it. (gasps) How dare you? 
I mean, like, you know, I think that there's a there's a way of looking at that like that. Um, I, I will say there's a, a fun little callback also with Nedry that uh, during his argument with John Hammond in the beginning, Jaws is playing in a small video window on one of uh, his computer screens. So he, Oh, no way. You know what, what is also decorating his computer? He has a picture of a man there. Mm-hmm. That man is um, Oppenheimer, the man who created oh, the atomic wow. bomb. Yeah, that's a little callback. But actually, speaking of ways of getting information across, you touched on the way that this film handles exposition. And I want to talk about that a little more because I think you're right. Like, I especially love, of course, the uh, film strip that we get explaining what DNA is and how it works. What? What? Oh, (laughs) Mr. DNA, where did you come from? From your blood. Just one drop of your blood contains billions of strands of DNA the building blocks of life. A DNA strand like me is a blueprint for building a living thing. And sometimes animals that went extinct millions of years ago, like dinosaurs, left their blueprints behind for us to find. We just had to know where to look. And what I love about that sequence, too, is they explain it like a Disney ride would explain it. Like, it's simple enough, but also, like, the the characters of the Mr. DNA, which, you know, makes me think of what they're doing right now in Loki. Loki is another show that is... Uh, you know, blowing out exposition in interesting ways, but they have to explain so much. And they've done a really brilliant job of of having these informational videos that lay it all out, but are also interesting and, and, and you know, kind of pulls you in. There's a, a whole term called like uh, the Pope in the pool, which is like you can drop a lot of exposition as long as your characters are doing something interesting. So I think the idea was that like you can talk about this whole lineage of like what the popes do as long as you have a pope swimming in a pool because the pope swimming in the pool is more interesting. It's sort of like it helps you like visually you're watching something interesting and you're hearing something interesting. It's almost like your mind can focus on it without being bored of it, if that makes sense. I'm probably doing a bad job of explaining it, but you get the point. I do get the point. And I I want you to hold on to your butt though, Paul, because that film strip sequence here was inspired by a filmmaker that you already name checked. On this episode. Edgar Wright, Baby Driver. Yes. No. (laughs) Uh, When Steven Spielberg was little, in his um, classes at school, they would wheel in a television and they would play educational videos for him about things like how does the human body work and what does a brain do and how is science existing on this planet? And the person who directed these educational videos was Frank Capra. And he did it in exactly this same style. I found a there's a full length one that's like explaining the circulatory system in the lungs. And it plays, it's like stars a guy named Hemo the Magnificent. It is very daffy. So this is what was in the back of Steven Spielberg's brain as a little child that he uses to create this. I acting and storing his liver. So now oxygen from lungs, carbon from liver is going into motor here and is burned into carbon dioxide, ashes, and energy. Energy body is using for working, thinking, playing Jinrami. You know, and I think we can get into so many technical things about this movie, you know, whether it's like, you know, it's the first movie dubbed into Hindi, it makes all this sort of money, but I think, you know, save that for somebody else to 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 crack into. Um, I want to kind of, I want to ask you one question first, which is a very important one. Um, 
would you have seen Jurassic Park if James Cameron was the director with Arnold Schwarzenegger as Grant, Bill Paxton as Malcolm, and Charlton Heston as Hammond? Honestly, at the age I was when this came out, I would have thought it was an adult film if it had that cast. Interesting. Oh, that's a really interesting point of view. That's something that James Cameron said he wanted to do. Uh, but I, I think you're, again, just going back to that point again of, of these characters, it allows these characters to be characters and not actors, right? We're not looking at actors in this movie. We don't know what to expect of anyone. And that, to me, uh, is kind of a staple of Spielberg films. I think Spielberg is always casting really interesting people that we don't know yet, but we will get to know. Um, and but it is interesting, though, to like imagine how other people would have done it. Oh, I mean, because like Schwarzenegger yeah. would have been terrible. I love Schwarzenegger. It's not the movie. It's not the movie. Him as a scientist. Yeah. But I mean, like everybody bid on this movie. Like, yes, Spielberg uh, spent two million dollars on it. Like one point five was for the book itself. And then another five hundred mm-hmm. was to get uh, Michael Crichton to adapt the script, which I think is also sort of like a please. Here's more money. Please, please do this film. And by the but way, like, but like only 20 percent of the novel is in the film. Oh, yeah. I mean, the novel's it's, like complicated and very scientific but the thing is like spielberg knew about the book before everybody else because he was already talking to michael Crichton about the show about like the book that would become er so they were already buddies and he knew about this book before it was even published weren't weren't they making like the the movie er they were gonna make like an er movie yeah yeah they're already tag teaming and so he knew about it and he was like please 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 i want this but they still had to bid on it to get the rights and listen to this like murderer's row of people who also bid $1.5 million to get this. They all bid $1.5 million. And Michael Crichton just like committed to Spielberg by, again, when he talked to everybody on the phone, he was like, I know that you're the guy to do this. You're the guy to do this, like the biggest and best way. But Warner Brothers wanted to buy it for Tim Burton. Mm-hmm. I mean, imagine that one. Columbia wanted to buy it for Richard Donner, who we're going to talk about later, late mm-hmm. in a different series when we talk about Superman. And um, Joe Dante of Gremlins almost did it for 20th Century Fox. Like all completely radically different ones. Weirdly, the one that I kind of want to see the most would be Joe Dante's. But that's just my Gremlins 2 creatures running amok part of me. I want to see what he would make of it. But I don't know if he could handle something of this scale. I think it would be a much smaller scale. The only person that I think could go toe-to-toe with Spielberg, and this is not just because of uh, his untimely passing well not untimely he was 91 god bless uh he did richard donner richard donner i think could have balanced both things very effectively uh only because of what he'd done in the past and and the style of film that he was able to do like i I would just rewatch goonies with my kids this week um they never saw it and uh and we immediately watched it again they like it they liked it loved loved it and i think what what you forget about or what I forget about, because I've watched a shitload of kids stuff, is kids like to be scared. We don't scare oh, kids sure. anymore. We don't like we don't make it dangerous anymore. And and there's a scene where Anne Ramsey, uh, who plays Ma Fratelli, like grabs Chunk by the mouth when he goes into the into the the cabin, which is like a restaurant, and she's like, We only serve tongue here, and grabs him and makes him stick out his tongue. And she takes out like a fucking switchblade and is like putting it by his tongue. My kids have never seen anything like that. And the music was making them scared, but they were loving it. They were like laughing and then they were scared and they were laughing again. And they, like this like push pull, I mean, you know, Spielberg obviously does that as well. But 
Richard Donner really leans into some scary stuff. I mean, they take Chunk, they kidnap Chunk in the middle of that movie. It's a PG movie, you know. Uh, anyway, it just, there's some really, really, really fun things that I think Richard Donner would be able to balance the scary, the fun, the youthful, the big, you know, and, and Richard Donner doesn't get spoken about enough. And I think, you know, his passing made us all kind of look at, oh, wow, look at his body at work. It's pretty impressive. And I and I never really thought of him as like a, a Spielberg contemporary, but he definitely has a pretty interesting, you know, across all genres, you know, just made some cool movies, like uh, yeah. very cool movies. I mean, Goonies is my least favorite. When I picture oh, that movie, I just picture like I love it. So I don't much. know a big muddy toolbox where everything's brown. And, it, and so to picture oh, the wow. beauty of Jurassic Park and lay it next to how unattractive I think Goonies is hurts my brain. But uh, Superman, I think, is probably our one of our absolute greatest superhero movies of all time. And I think he balances the heart and the adult in that really well. And I think he mm. has one of the greatest female characters who's been in a superhero movie in um, his Lois Lane. So I'd be curious. I would be curious. I mean, when this movie is made, like Spielberg's coming off Hook, which is, I think, like a more expensive, messier Goonies. It's not, mm, it's also yeah. not good. And it's also too, I think, I think condescending to what kids like, you know? Um, but I love your point about fear because that makes me think about how here... Steven Spielberg says something that I can't imagine another filmmaker doing, which is like when the little boy is climbing the electric fence. And I like this kind of concurrent action of like, you want the little kid to get off this electric fence before it is turned on. But you also really want Laura Dern to hurry up and turn the fence on so they can like mm -hmm. pin all the dinosaurs. So the idea that like your, your competing interests are two people trying to do the right thing is a fun, dramatic setup. But Spielberg lets the kid get electrocuted. Like he doesn't just narrowly jump off the fence yeah. in time and he's fine. He actually zaps the kid. He's like, Zit, kid, zapped, fried, kid's heart stops. And like, of course, Samuel brings him back, but he lets the kid get zapped. And I, I really respected that. I, I too. I mean, I am, uh, I like that where this movie goes. I want to just have you answer just gut. All right. I'm going to throw some questions out, a compare and contrast. And I want our people listening right now to do the same thing. Keep score for yourself. But here we go. Comparing Jaws to Jurassic Park, what has a better opening scene, Jaws or Jurassic Park? Uh, honestly, for me, I'm going to go Jaws. Interesting. Okay. I mean, I really do like the pacing of the water and I feel terrified in that. And I did think this opening was, while well done, a bit of a retread. Okay. What has better characters? Jaws or Jurassic Park? <sighs> Muldoon. We're talking about Muldoon here. Nedry. We're talking about Hammond. We're talking about, we're talking about, because when you think about Jaws, you know, we got, we really got three main characters, really. I mean, at the end of the day. Yeah. You got Scheider, you got Dreyfus, and um, you've got Quint. And Quint is the most charactery of the three. Mm -hmm. It's hard to say much about what Brody's character is. I agree. Um, and I like how Dreyfus is just like sort of nerdy and weird and, mm -hmm. and dresses like his mom dressed him. I mean, Dreyfus definitely has the most Alan Grant in him. Yeah. 
Iya, iya, iya. But does more memorable characters mean better characters? I think... I think that the scope of characters is way better in Jurassic Park. I just think that there, there, there's so much more. We're just describing, you said, I can't really describe what, you know, Roy Scheider's character is. He's the main character of the movie. Like, that's a, that is an issue for me. And I agree I, with you. I will I mean, say look, that the characters Quint of Jaws... Is, Quint think, is amazing. Think, okay. Jaws, I think, has more believable humans. And I think mm. Jurassic Park has more memorable characters. Can I thread that needle? I guess I'll 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 accept. Uh and then finally uh our well better reaction shot. Roy Scheider looking at the jaws for the first time or Alan Grant looking at the T-Rex for the first time. Alan Grant. I just like how I like how Sam Neill looks at everything in this. Like I mean it's pretty impressive. I like that right? when Laura Dern sees a dinosaur for the first time, she has a tiny little tear in her eye and it doesn't feel corny to me. Yeah. Again, this is, if you're talking about Baby Driver a lot, I'm only talking about contact, but that that sense of, I have waited my whole life to see something and here it is, is beautifully done. Absolutely beautifully done in this film. All right. Then plot. What has a better plot? Because I was thinking about this. like This has the, more plot. Jurassic Park has more plot. There's more layers to it, right? Because honestly, like, I, and look, I am a huge Jaws fan. I love Jaws. I'm not, I'm not shitting on Jaws. I'm just kind of looking at these two movies and going like, all right, if we have to battle these two out, just for the only reason, because I'm saying we're going to battle them out. Because you're uh, a cruel master. Because I'm you didn't think master. to ask whether or not you should. should yes, I'm just going to do it. I'm going I'm to say, look, the plot of Jaws is shark is here. We got to go kill shark. Right. That's it. Like that. That's the plot. They, the uh, majority uh, of the movie. Uh, with the relativeness that makes that movie feel as modern day when our mayors are like, what do you mean? Uh, there's a play? one million percent. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying. But like yeah. plot wise, that movie is. No. OK. But the emotional through line of that, I think, actually really carries through. It, it's about something that that continues to be relevant. That has definitely gotten a lot of play in this pandemic, but. I don't think that that's the, I don't think that they're going out there because the mayor is being reckless. I think that they're going out there because they got to kill this shark. Like, they're not like, God damn it, mayor, we won't listen to you. We're going to do this on our own. Like, don't ever put our people at risk. I think it's sort of like, it, it oh, just yeah, that would be much lamer. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's not like, it, it's fine. It's it, like, it's a great movie. I'm just saying, but like plot wise, it's pretty thin. It's like, it's a, it's like A to, it's A to B. I mean, really it's A to B. Where this is really interesting because what you described before, it's a movie that's incredibly layered as far as every one of these characters. And this is where I'm going to go back to, I'm going to kind of go backwards here and say, like, what I like about these characters is every one of these characters has a really clean journey. And yes, they may have a, a, a similar theme. They're all like worry. They're all like opening themselves up. They're learning about themselves, their creation, this idea of fatherhood or whatever that might be like. But each one has a journey. Like we separate people we, um, it's not a monster in the house. The t- in, in many ways, the T-Rex should be the monster in the house, but the T-Rex is the hero. I mean, the T-Rex is definitely the hero at the end, which is an interesting even twist as well, which I think also brings into this idea that like these monsters are not, um, the raptors are, yes, they're the villains, but they're not the villains. They're just fucking hunters. Like, you know, mm-hmm. like they're hunting and they're down. they're acting like cats. They're so goofy. They're bonded to each other, which I like. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, the T-Rex wasn't even supposed to be the hero. It's just that it looked so good 
in the construction of it. I mean, they did also build like a giant T-Rex. There was like a um, animatronic puppet that was 18 feet tall. Um, And I think like 12,000 pounds, really heavy. And it was actually hitting those kids, but it looked so good that Spielberg was like, we can't just have it for this shot. We have to bring it back for the end. The original ending was like the dinosaur statue falls on the raptors and just like, yeah, and like a dinosaur them. bone like stabs yeah. them and and everyone on set was like, lame. you can't do that and he's like oh, okay we'll figure it out uh you know and spielberg obviously figured it out to a great degree um but i do i do believe that uh i think but is cleaner better are cleaner characters better like is a cleaner arc mean it's a better movie what about like our love of muddied seventies movies where everybody's mumbling and it's like, it's unclear how they feel. Jaws I don't know how is I feel definitely, the time. Look at me. I want to die on a carnival ride. I know. Well, look, Jaws is definitely more of an adult movie. Right. But I also feel like, and going back to what we just talked about with Richard Donner is he makes a thrilling movie that I don't think takes away anything from what you get with Jaws, but makes it a lot more commercial and, you know, for the family but you're still getting everything you want. Like, there's nothing about this movie. Both of these movies, like, you have you have Sam Jackson smoking. You know, you have Roy Scheider smoking. Obviously, they're different types of people. Uh, they're, you know, one's a lead. But, like, they're, uh, they are, what I'm impressed with is he took an adult movie that is Jaws and transferred it into a four-quadrant summer blockbuster that is as layered as a 70s film, but also as... Uh, you know, that opens its arms to everyone. It's a movie that, you know, when I saw as a kid that like I was, I loved being a part of this club. I don't think that every movie is like this, but I definitely feel like this movie is, is special and probably a little bit more special than Jaws. Not to say that Jaws is not good. I'm just saying, but if I'm looking at po- both of them, I think pound for pound Jurassic Park is the better movie. And I And I can say it in the sense of, how could it not be? Because it's the same person who's trying to top himself. It's not like, oh, here's James Cameron's version of Jaws. No, this is Steven Spielberg's version of going, okay, everything that I did in Jaws, I'm going to keep on doing and I'm going to make it better. So I think that's why we can have this argument. It's not like, oh, what if someone else made it? It's like, no, here's the same guy who made this, you know, he bettered himself. I think he, I think he stepped it up. That's all I'm going to say. I mean, the, the topping the yourself, I think, is an interesting argument. I think that is a compelling argument. And I'm wondering if we go the pound for pound route and have the most Spielberg movie in this, in our list, does that mean we can just get rid of the swath of other Spielbergs? If we put in the most Spielbergian that has a bunch of like the childhood reaction shots and everything Mm -hmm. that you like, and has, I think, set pieces absolutely as good as everything in Indiana Jones. I love the uh, vertical car chase. I just think the design of that is excellent where the car is kind of smashing down through the roof. If we go with most Spielberg, can I kill everything else? Well, I don't know if I, we should make that decision right now, but I will say this. If we are only picking 100 films and it's Han Solo versus Indiana Jones, while very hard to, because we kind of talked about, you know, do you put all the movies, all the Star Wars movies together, the three, the original three? or? Uh, but they're not uh, all that good. I, well, look, I would put Empire over. Well, I don't know. It's, it's interesting. It's like. Uh, you have Star Wars. Like, I feel like you got to take one or the other, maybe. I and mean, this is my argument. But if, if we can only take one Spielberg, 
Well, I think we always talk about taking two Spielbergs because his his work is very diverse, right? Like it's it's really, you know, if you took like if you took Schindler's List and and um, Jurassic Park, I mean, that's two ends of the spectrum there. I mean, I think he should definitely. I There's definitely think that Spielberg argument. needs to get the same treatment that we give Kubrick. That's all I'm saying. That's fair. I will say. And this is a tiny tangent, but if anybody there wants to Google this movie and watch it, it would fill me with joy. I saw a movie about the Holocaust this weekend that's getting reissued that is better than Schindler's List. Mm. Um, It's an old movie. It's from 1949. It's Czechoslovakian. It's called Distant Journey. It's made, you know, by a director who was there, who witnessed it and turned it into this noir where they take kind of camera angles and ideas and shadows from Citizen Kane, there is like tracking shots in this movie from 1949 about the Holocaust, about like um, a Jewish woman who marries an Aryan doctor. They're both doctors to try to like save herself and her family. And it doesn't. You wind up going to the camps and seeing how people are surviving. And it is so fresh and passionate and angry and relevant and new. And it is one of the most astonishing films I've seen in a long time. And it was banned um, in by the Czech government for a really long time, for 40 years. Oh, wow. It's only now getting... It only got a reissue like in the late 80s, but it hasn't had any traction as a classic because it was buried and now people are still coming back and finding it. A Distant Journey, absolutely phenomenal. It's basically a, a silent movie and uh, I can't rhapsodize it enough. Like I want everybody to watch this movie. So well, having that. seen that, it's easier for me to let Schindler's List go, to be honest. Okay. Like, bye. It's great, but bye. Hmm. I mean, well, let's go back to the debate at hand here because I don't want to necessarily, I don't want to necessarily just like, I don't feel like I'm fully ready to to beat out all the Spielberg of it all, but I will say between these two movies, my original thought was Jurassic Park is better than Jaws if we are talking about posterity. I think we were talking about that as far as a technical standpoint. I think we're talking about that as far as a scripting standpoint. I think that Spielberg is a better director in this than he was in Jaws, and he was already great in Jaws, but I think he it improved. Uh, I think that obviously the effects are better, um, and I just think pound for pound, Jurassic Park. I did not change my opinion. Where I changed my opinion about Aliens and Alien, I did not change it here. I feel more cemented in it. I love Jaws. I will watch Jaws maybe two times a year probably uh because i love it so much but this is is a better movie you know what i'm swayable on this because now i'm thinking about what we could open up from directors in the 70s who are actually grappling with the messiness of human behavior what other films we could put in a slot like jaws that jaws didn't have to do double duty on that if Mm -hmm. i could put in like a cassavetes film instead something with gina Rollins, like yeah it's an argument. I'm 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 very open to this. Yeah, I think it's I think what we are reacting to on some level too is you know, I think there's a we are we could fall into the trap of I think what the AFI falls into. We can fall into a trap of what the AFI can kind of fall into, which is like first is best, 70s is cooler, mm-hmm. you know, but we have to look at this film also in the year 1993. These actors are just as cool choice-wise as, you know, as you talk about everybody in Jaws. I mean, they are yeah. they are all equally, you know, yeah. now we know them. It's sort of like the Die Hard problem. It's like, is Die Hard still exciting and great? I think it is. But uh, 
but it's like we've seen so many versions of it done so many times and sometimes bad. It's like every John Wick clone. Got yeah. it. It's like it, it doesn't dilute from John Wick, but we've seen it so much that like John Wick loses a little bit of its steam. And I think that there's definitely something at play with these this character in this world, especially as we are now into our sixth Jurassic Park film coming out soon and like cartoons of Jurassic Park, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think that we should shy away from the new and what has more resonance to most people. And I think that not that 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 it's a popularity contest, but I also feel like because this movie is more accessible, because this movie is grander, because this movie is exciting, it makes it, I, I think, like we talked about Titanic, it becomes a film that I think I would watch Jurassic Park with my kids more, first more than I would watch Jaws. And I don't think that like they wouldn't like Jaws. I just think that like there's something about this that is more fun. At the end of the day, more fun. And again, we're talking about like a 9 versus a 10. Maybe even a 9, nine 5 versus a 10. Well, I'm, this whole conversation appeals to the part of me that believes that nothing is sacred. You know, uh, that we yeah. can resurrect dinosaurs if we want to and kill off classic movies. Even the originator of the series that we are about to continue on doing, like Jaws. I want to at least have that thought be seriously considered because it sounds like a sort of thing that you don't consider. Like, get Jaws off the top 100 list. What? Are you crazy? But really, what right. if you're not? What if it's not crazy? Well, yeah, I mean, there's there's a debate here. And I think that we're going into this debate right now of the best summer blockbusters. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But we, I know we need to talk about two very important things, which is obviously we love this movie. We had a good time with this movie. It's a, it's a quintessential summer blockbuster. Uh, how did everyone else feel? Was it just universally loved? I feel like it must have been. Well, you know, I'm actually excited to read this review that I found. Um, there were negative patronizing reviews, of course. Um, the one that I selected is from Terrence uh, Rafferty of The New Yorker. Uh, and I think he brings up some points in here that I want to keep in mind as we go forth on our summer blockbuster uh, series about his issues with this whole type of genre of filmmaking. In Jurassic Park, neither the benign beasts nor the scary monsters inspire anything close to awe, even with the aid of audience stimulants like surging symphonic scores and repeated close-ups of wide-eyed, open-mouthed actors. Spielberg's monsters have a showroom shine, but for all the ingenuity of the movie's engineering, the movie just doesn't have the imagination or the courage to take us any place we haven't been a thousand times before. It's just a creature feature on amphetamines for kids and grown-ups who yearn to relive the dumb thrills of their first movie-going experiences. The storytelling is so basic that it's virtually prehistoric. Hitmakers of Spielberg's magnitude often suffer puzzling creative slumps because the relationship between commercial entertainer and audience is inherently unstable. It is difficult to do the same tricks over and over, especially if you've already performed them so beautifully that there's no room for improvement. Crichton and Spielberg have not come up with anything new. They've just cloned themselves and they clearly believe that the audience can no longer tell the difference between the real thing and a lab-hatched replica. Wow. Interesting. I mean, who Right? I mean, I yeah. think that is something to, to, to keep in mind. I, I think, again, it's sort of this idea of like where you get, where you get locked into old is better but i think this movie we just we really examined so many parts of it and and thematically where you know i'll go back and say that you know this movie is not a horror movie it has elements of you know it's a thriller it's a it's a it's not just a monster it's it it's more the characters have more at stake there's more 
plotting. There is, there's more science. There's something about this that is, I think on the surface, it can seem like, oh, he's just doing Jaws with dinosaurs, but it's not that. I mean, it clearly yeah. is not that, and it wouldn't have, and it wouldn't hold up. And I think the reason why that, you know, I think a lot of people who grew up and are older than us and, and are our same age, like look at Jaws the same way, but I think Jurassic Park has more, look, Jaws has plenty of sequels. Jurassic but, Park has plenty of sequels. But there is a there is a an awe that's still in Jurassic Park that Jaws does not have. However, mm-hmm. now I feel like I should say that the movie that, that critic that Terrence Raftery is comparing this to of Spielberg's isn't Jaws. He thinks that his high point is E.T., which is a whole other conversation. I mean, it's a whole he other movie. He thinks that E.T. Yes. is his perfect film and that everything else can go, you know, jump in a dinosaur lake. Yeah. You know, uh, and maybe it is because I mean, talk about like family and character. That's all in that one too. And talk about innovation and style. I love E.T. I mean, I love E.T. E.T. is great. Oh, so much. There's so much to debate here. I guess right now, you know, the question is, will we send this to space? I think there's a part of us that really feel like this, this goes on the list. There is, although there is now a, a hardened part of me that says we only get one Spielberg blockbuster. We do. I'm going to be a tyrant. The, I'm going to be the T-Rex stopping in here and saying, wow. we pick one. All right. So I'm going to then, if you're going to throw that in that gauntlet, then I'm going to have to say that you have to do the same thing for Cameron and Kubrick. Three okay. white men, straight white men only get one, one of, I mean, it's brutal. But we You're can't, doing we that can't. just to make me cry about Terminator 2 versus Titanic, but of that's course, fine. Yeah. Okay. All right, there if you I'm go. asking you to cry, you could ask me to cry. All right, so we're going to say one Spielberg. I'm going to let the jury be out because I don't feel like I'm ready to defend E.T. versus versus uh, Jurassic Park at this moment. I don't feel like I can speak to it, and I don't feel like it, we can sum it up in, in moments. But I will say that uh, that might be the debate. That might be the the long-lasting debate for me, those two. So yeah. put this on the side. I put it on the side of the, the pile. Well, so what we've done is I think we've axed Raiders in – Maybe Jaws, which... Wow, that's rough. I'm rough kind stuff. of at peace with it. I'm at peace with it too, ultimately. It's rough because I love those yeah. movies. And again, we're cutting, we're really, you know, we're really killing babies here. Uh, but we have to send this list to space eventually. Um, hey, Spielberg electrocutes a kid, we kill a baby. Well, you know what, Amy? I think that we're going to have another rough go of it here as we go forward in summer blockbusters because we talked about Spielberg and he is the inventor of the blockbuster you know, in many ways. But what about, I don't know, the staple of the blockbuster? There was a time where one name was synonymous with a summer blockbuster, and that name was Will Smith. And we went to the Discord. We went on social media. We asked between Independence Day, Bad Boys 2, and Men in Black, what is the film that is the quintessential Will Smith summer blockbuster? And the answer was pretty close, but definitely a winner. Between Independence Day and Men in Black, Men in Black edged out Independence Day, and I'm so happy it did. Uh, and I'm so happy to rewatch that film. I haven't watched that in a long, long time. Uh, and I am excited to see if that holds up. Again, Barry Sonnenfeld, another visually interesting uh, director, great concept, great actors. And really, in many respects, uh, this is kind of, you know, Will Smith, I think, really knowing his value as a summer blockbuster star here. This is this is like 
we're going to go see a Will Smith movie. Yeah, he is ready. He is ready. Okay, right. well, so I'm ready. Let's do right. it. Men in Black and- next week. We work for a highly funded yet unofficial government agency. We'll take it from here. Who the hell are you? INS Division 6. There is no Division 6. Our mission is to monitor extraterrestrial activity on Earth. You're all here because you're the best of the best. And we're looking for one of you. Hey! What's up? You want to get some coffee? You want some coffee? No, thank you. I'm fine. Hey, you guys get along all right? Yeah. All right, I'm in. From now on, you will have no identifying marks of any kind. You are no longer part of the system. We are the men in black. You know what the difference is between you and me? I make this look good. And uh, keep on a lookout for our next polls that are up on our social media and Discord and everything like that. Make sure you get involved and pick because you determine the fate of what summer blockbusters we are watching. Yeah. The one that's really painful with me is the one about Back to the Future versus Roger Rabbit. Mm, get in your votes right like now. Back to way, the Future. Either way, whichever one wins, I lose. Well, you know, we can always revisit these. We can always revisit one that maybe gets knocked out right now. Um, all no, right. No, let's be. No, wait, wait, let's not say that. Let's sound cruel. Yeah. Yeah. I think we could always revisit an animation and stuff. Uh, what do you say? You're, you're still sounding nice. Sound cruel. Sound cruel? No, I won't. Yeah. I won't just kill something because I can, Amy. I won't John Hammond this. Uh, I will consider it, be respectful to it. Uh, all right. We will see you next week for Men in Black, which is available everywhere. Five years, Mike's has been making lemonade the hard way. Mike's Hard Lemonade. Hard days deserve a hard lemonade. Mike's is hard. So is prison. Don't drive drunk. Premium all beverage with flavors. All registered trademarks used under license by Mike's Hard Lemonade Company, Chicago, Illinois. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.